Jen is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, soon associate, I believe. Um, and she was previously here uh, as a collegiate assistant professor of humanities at the University of Chicago, where she was a member of the Society of Fellows in the Liberal Arts and affiliated faculty in the philosophy department. Um, little known fact, she also was assistant director for the Lumen Christi Institute. Um, so for those of us who are working as associate and assistant directors here, um, we can only be so lucky um, if we are going to be as successful as she has been, both as a scholar and a public intellectual. Um, I think, unfortunately for Austin and I, Jen is far more talented than we are. Um, she holds a PhD from the University of Pittsburgh and a BA from Indiana University Bloomington. Um, she was recently the co-principal investigator on a major three-year research project titled Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life. Um, Jen is also a rising sort of, um, public scholar, uh, uh, public Catholic scholar. Um, one of the, the reasons we're so excited to have her here. Um, last night, for example, she, uh, as a part of an ecumenical initiative that Lumen Christi was a part of, um, was the sort of co-panelist um, for a dialogue on what good is happiness, a dialogue between economics and philosophy um, that had 185 undergrads um, there just to sort of um, soak this in and see uh, sort of, you know, these two pitted perspectives as well as the cynical kids who are coming answer, asking that question, what good is happiness anyways? Um, Jen also has her own philosophy and literature podcast entitled Sacred and Profane Love that can be found anywhere podcasts are listed. Otherwise, please join me in welcoming to the stage today, Jennifer Frey. Hi. Um, thank you so much, Michael, for the introduction. Um, so I'm going to be talking to you about Flannery O'Connor and the vision of grace. I'm not going to presuppose any knowledge of Flannery O'Connor. Um, if you know a lot about her, you'll just have to bear with me. Um, I'm going to talk about who she was, her life. That's the first part of my talk. The second part of my talk, I'm going to discuss her vision as an artist and the relationship between her vision and the writing of Thomas Aquinas. Um, and then for the third part of my talk, um, I'm going to work through one of her stories. Um, I think that she's a wonderful writer, but she's a demanding writer. She's demanding of her readers. Um, and so I just kind of want to give you a sense of how you ought to be reading her and also how we can see um, Thomist Catholic views about grace at work in her fiction. So, first I want to say who she was. So, Mary Flannery O'Connor was born on March 25th in 1925 in Savannah, Georgia. She was born right in the heart of the city's Irish Catholic enclave in a hospital run by the Sisters of Mercy. She was named after Mary Ellen Flannery, wife of John Flannery, who was a Confederate officer in Savannah's Irish Military Corps, who became a wealthy banker in the post-war years. So the hospital that she was born in, and also the Catholic cathedral that she worshipped in, um, was built with his money. Mary Flannery was the only child to Regina and Edward O'Connor, 
who both doted on her in very different ways. Regina desperately wanted her daughter to become a traditional Southern belle, gracious, well-mannered and well-manicured, a consummate hostess, whereas her father was content to let his daughter pursue her intense passions for drawing and for writing, and he was not in the least concerned by her wholesale rejection, her sort of wholesale rejection of the trappings of Southern girlhood. She was extremely precocious and she was an intense child. She was painfully shy and antisocial, but she also enjoyed a rich interior life. Um, through her letters, we know that she was um, engaged in intense battles with her guardian angel, whom she pictured as a bird. Um, she resented, uh, like I said, traditional Southern expectations on her. One sign of this was that she called her parents by her first name, even as a small girl. Um, and she was basically closer to birds uh, than to other children. Mary Flannery did not impress the strict, pious nuns who taught her at St. Vincent's Grammar School in Savannah, but the feelings were mutual. <laughs> she once complained to a friend that the sisters had taught her to measure her sins with a slide rule. As an adult, she complained of Mary processions and of other nun-inspired doings. So she was a very devout Catholic, but she really kind of abhorred traditional Catholic piety. So later in her life, her mother really wanted her to go to Lourdes, um, and, and she desperately did not want to go. In 1937, her father, with whom she was especially close, was diagnosed with lupus. She was 12 years old. She later wrote of herself at this time, I was a very ancient 12. My views at that age would have done credit to a Civil War veteran. I am much younger now than I was at 12, or at any rate, less burdened. So at 13, she leaves Savannah, and she moves to Milledgeville. This is the site of her mother's family's stately antebellum mansion, a space that she shared with other members of her mother's family. She spent countless hours in this mansion drawing, writing, and tending to the birds. At this point, uh, she goes from a very strict Catholic environment to the Peabody Model School. This is actually a laboratory school that's moder uh, it's, uh, it's sort of like the laboratory school actually down in Hyde Park. So it's modeled on uh, the democratic theories of the philosopher John Dewey. And on the one hand, you know, young Mary O'Connor is very happy to be free from the nuns, um, but she also finds that she's equally disdainful of the free thinkers at her new school. Um, and she's particularly unimpressed that they don't demand um, that everyone be reading literature. So one thing that's interesting about Milledgeville uh, for young Mary is that the entire city is designated a bird sanctuary. And so it was a place that seemed to suit her especially well. And while she was at her mother's family's mansion in the town, uh, she would also often wander out to her uncle's farm. Her uncle's farm uh, had a nickname, Andalusia. It was a 550-acre farm, and there were hundreds of birds there. Um, and so she liked being there very much. In 1941, her father succumbed to lupus. Um, this was a very, very difficult loss for her. Her father was the most uh, close, intimate relationship she had. 
And she described the loss of her father in the following way. This is from her letters. The reality of death has come upon us, and a consciousness of the power of God has broken our complacency like a bullet in the side. A sense of the dramatic, of the tragic, of the infinite has descended upon us, filling us with grief, but even above grief, wonder. In her father's death, again, the person with whom she felt the deepest kinship and affection, she was still able to see the work of grace, but in a way that hurt her rather than comforted her. And so I think at a young age, she had this insight that God's grace can be violent, it can be disruptive, that it can shock you out of a kind of spiritual complacency and comfort in your life. And this really would be the enduring theme of her fiction. Maybe not surprisingly, in high school, Mary began to stand out for her writing. A classmate of her once attested that being in creative writing with Mary Flannery was sheer torture. I remember she wrote a very strange story with impossibly weird characters. Uh, so in 1942, she goes to the Georgia State College for Women, which is still in Milledgeville. It's a progressive college. Um, on campus, she actually distinguishes herself uh, for her sense of humor. So she is a cartoonist. She still loved to draw. She's a cartoonist for the campus newspaper. Um, one thing that I find really interesting about her college years is that um, the most important course, the most formative course that she took in college was in philosophy. Um, it was a survey of modern philosophy. The hero of the course was Rene Descartes. Um, if you don't know anything about Descartes, um, he thinks of the world as purely material. So he thinks that we can understand the world just in terms of math and science. And the perspective of the teacher of the course is a secular humanist. Now, young Mary Flannery is very unimpressed with this perspective. Um, so she begins to argue regularly with her professor even going so far as to diagram on the board for her professors and her fellow students, sort of like Thomism on one side and modernism on the other side and trying to show that Thomism would come out on top. Um, but basically her perspective was that it was modernism that had blinded the Western mind to the most central features of reality. And it did this by narrowing its focus on what's material and quantifiable. And she thinks, well, actually, the most salient aspects of reality are neither material nor quantifiable. So she's obviously really disagreeing with her professor. But at the same time, she very much impresses her professor, um, both with her talents as a writer and with her abilities as a thinker. And her professor desperately doesn't want to see her just become, I don't know, maybe a teacher in Milledgeville. So he strongly encourages her to apply to graduate work at the University of Iowa. And O'Connor is accepted into the University of Iowa, um, but she's accepted into the School of Journalism. But basically, as soon as she arrives on campus, she realizes she doesn't fit there. She wants to go over to the writer's workshop. The writer's workshop was run at the time by Paul Engel. So she goes to try to talk to Engel. However, her Georgia accent is so thick that he cannot understand a word she says to him. So eventually, 
Um, after sort of nicely asking her to repeat herself several times, he doesn't get anywhere, so he gives her a pad of paper and he says, please just write down what you're saying. <laughs> and she writes down three sentences. My name is Flannery O'Connor. I am not a journalist. Can I please come to the writer's workshop? <laughs> so he says, okay, well send me some of your stories. She sends him one. She's immediately accepted. And it was around this time, it was when she moved to Iowa and she enrolls in the um, Iowa Writers' Workshop um, that she starts to stop referring to herself as Mary Flannery. She just goes by Flannery. Um, and when she was later asked about this change of name, like, why did you stop going by Flan Mary O'Connor? Uh, she wrote, well, who was likely to buy the stories of an Irish washerwoman? Um, so, she thought maybe it would uh, typecast her. Um, and I think also it wasn't lost on her that Flannery was, was sort of a gender neutral name. Um, it didn't necessarily pick her out as a woman. Um, and she would actually sometimes brag that she would receive desk rejections from journals addressed to Mr. Flannery O'Connor. Um, so it's also around this time um, I mean, I think you can really describe her time at the Writer's Workshop in terms of really perfecting her craft as a writer, in particular the formal aspects of her craft. And it's at this time, uh, really the first time, that she reads the great European novels. Um, so again, she's still painfully shy, she's still a bit of a recluse, she, she spends the entire time, um, you know, reading Dostoevsky and, and Flaubert and the great novelists. Um, and she's also becoming acquainted with all of the famous writers who are passing through the Writers' Workshop in Iowa. It was sort of a who's, a who's who of famous contemporary writers. Um, and this is really good for her because it connects her to the kind of broader literary scene. Um, and so once she graduates from Iowa, she takes up an incredibly prestigious summer residency at Yaddo. So this is this famous artist colony in Saratoga Springs, New York. Um, and this is just a time for her uh, to focus on her writing, to be fully supported and funded in a place of, of, of isolation. And it's at Yaddo that she meets and becomes friends with Robert Lowell, the poet. Um, so he later joins her there. Um, Lowell ends up being uh, a really interesting figure in her life, but I think one of the primary things he does for her is he connects her to prominent literary Catholics. So there was like this brief span of time where Lowell was a Catholic, it didn't last, but it lasted long enough to connect her to people like Robert Giraud at Harcourt Brace and Robert and Sally Fitzgerald. Um, and these are people who really helped her um, once she left Yaddo. So she leaves Yaddo and she goes, like any aspiring writer, she goes to live in New York City to try to advance her career. Flannery hated New York. Um, so her friends were very generous to her. They were, they were very happy to kind of talk her up at fancy cocktail parties and talk about, you know, what a serious up-and-coming writer she was. Um, but this was not an environment that she felt well-suited to. Um, and there's a really hilarious story in one of her letters about one evening at one of these cocktail parties with a big intellectual who sort of identified herself to Flannery as a lapsed Catholic. So here's what Flannery writes. 
Towards morning, the conversation turned on the Eucharist, which I, being the Catholic, was obviously supposed to defend. Mrs. Broadwater said that when she was a child and received the host, she thought of it as the Holy Ghost, he being the most potable person of the Trinity. Now, she thought of it as a symbol, and she implied it was a pretty good one. But I then said, in a very shaky voice, well, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. That was all the defense I was capable of, but I realize now this is all I will ever be able to say about it, outside of a story, except that it is the center of my existence. All the rest of life is expendable. So she only actually has a, a really short time in New York City. Um, she has an even shorter time living with the Fitzgeralds in Connecticut. Um, and eventually she has to return to Georgia for good. And the reason is that she herself um, is diagnosed with lupus. After her diagnosis, she goes back to the farm in Milledgeville. She becomes incredibly uh, dependent on her mother. And she devotes herself to her writing, to her painting, and also to caring for the hundreds of birds on the farm, especially 70 peafowl. And this is where she writes her first novel, Wise Blood. It's published in 1952. She's 27 years old. And to just give you some literary context, this is the same year that Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea is published and Steinbeck's East of Eden is published. Critical reactions to O'Connor's first novel are very mixed. Um, Critics, I think, really couldn't understand why her characters were so darkly comic and freakish, or why her work contained so much violence. Her publisher remarked that they all recognized the power of her writing, but they missed her point. And I think that's true. I think this is still largely true of critical reaction to Flannery O'Connor. I think they largely missed the point. Um, so really, so her first novel um, is a somewhat limited success, but it's the publication of A Good Man is Hard to Find. So this is her first uh, short story um, that really secures her status as one of the greatest writers of her generation. Her publisher, Robert Giraud, uh, compared the story to the best of Hemingway and Melville. So, in the end, O'Connor ends up publishing two novels and 32 short stories, um, but she dies uh, of complications related to her lupus uh, in August of 1964, where she was busy at work on her third novel. And actually, uh, there's, a, there's a young scholar in Arkansas, Arkansas. Uh, her name is Jessica Houghton Wilson, who is currently uh, trying to get this third novel published. So we'll see what comes of that. So that's, so that's Flannery O'Connor, that's her story. Um, I want to go through it because I think in understanding who she was, um, we can better understand her fiction. But now I want to talk about what I take her vision of grace to be and how I take her vision of grace to be related to the thought of Thomas Aquinas. So we know that Flannery had the habit of reading Thomas Aquinas uh, every evening before bed. Um, she once claimed that she read a lot of theology because it made her writing bolder. Um, she was also once described by critics as a hillbilly nihilist, but she protested that in fact, she's a hillbilly Thomist. That she wrote happy stories that centered on the work of grace upon and in us, 
thick with the promise of God's mercy and redemption. So why would she say that? Because her stories are very novel. Uh, they, are, they are very violent and dark. Well, if you think about Aquinas' vision of the human person, he thinks that we're created in the image of God and we're naturally ordained to our own perfection or happiness. Like this is what we want by our nature. Um, but we're not obviously going to get it. And the work of our pilgrimage here on earth is to freely cooperate with God's grace so that we can attain this end, which does transcend this life and will beatify us. So she's taking that idea that we're sort of born for happiness, but she's also taking from Aquinas a kind of realism, a kind of Christian realism. So for Thomas, what it means to live well as a human person, he understands the human person as a rational kind of animal, is fundamentally to know and to love reality. And that means that you seek to conform yourself to what is true so that you can have loving communion with what is good and you can take delight in what is beautiful. The true, the good, and the beautiful for Thomas are just different ways that a person can relate to being or reality. And of course, Thomas understands God as the ultimate reality because his essence is his being. And that also means that for Thomas, God is truth and goodness and beauty itself in its totality. Now, reality includes both God's creation as communicative of and ordered to his own goodness, but also God's activity in sustaining his creation in being and also working to bring it back to himself. And that means that the Christian must never try to hide from reality, but always try to live in conformity with it. This is often difficult for us. Reality can be a tough master, and O'Connor saw this very clearly. So she sees the temptation to resist or ignore or distract oneself from reality, that this is a constant temptation for us. And it's central to her vision of grace that it works to kind of pierce the veil of perception, right? To help us to see the world as it actually is. It sort of forces us to confront things, most especially the unpleasant things, like the effects of sin in our own souls, right? Grace can work to show that to you. So of her Christian Thomist realism, O'Connor once wrote the following. The term Christian realism, realism has become necessary for me, perhaps in a purely academic way, because I find myself in a world where everybody has his compartment. They will put you in yours, shut the door, and leave. One of the awful things about writing when you are a Christian is that for you, the ultimate reality is the incarnation. The present reality is the incarnation. The whole reality is the incarnation, but nobody believes in the incarnation at least nobody in your audience. So this idea that God's grace can help us to really see reality, including most especially the reality of the incarnation as our redemption and our salvation, this is the theme of O'Connor's fiction, but it's also fundamentally tied to her own understanding of what fiction is, of what it's doing, of its enduring value, and also to that of the artist 
as having and relating a kind of prophetic vision through her art. So she writes that the novelist must be characterized not by his function, but by his vision. And we must remember that his vision has to be transmitted and that the limitations and blind spots of the audience will very definitively affect the way he is able to show what he sees. There are ages when it is possible to woo the reader. She does not think she lives in one of those ages. And there are others when something more drastic is necessary. So she thinks her readers are coarsened. She thinks it's going to take something pretty dramatic and drastic to get them to see the realities that she wants to point them to. So she really feels she needs to shock her audience. Um, she once wrote that she was always irritated by people who implied that writing fiction is an escape from reality. It is a plunge into reality, and it's very shocking. So she insists that morality for an artist lies in her vision, not in a lesson. So I think she would actually completely agree with somebody like Nabokov that great literature isn't didactic, okay? Its point isn't to teach you a lesson. You could come to a moral theory class with me if you wanted something like that, or maybe you could go to Sunday school. Um, what is it for fiction? She says, if the writer is a successful artist, his moral judgment will coincide with his dramatic judgment. It will be inseparable from the very act of his seeing. So this is a really interesting claim to me. I think that the idea that moral vision is related to character and good judgment is also something that she's getting from Aquinas. So if you look at what Aquinas says about prudence, that's practical reason, um, that's perfected practical reason or good practical judgment. Um, it's, like a, it's like a habit of knowing what to pursue and avoid, not just generally, but in the actual concrete particular circumstances that you find yourself in. And he describes the prudent man as one whose sight is keen. And he identifies it with a kind of interior sense because um, it also involves memory and imagination. Prudence is basically applying your general reason to action. Action is the realm of particulars, which are constantly changing. So what the prudent man can do is they can see in the ever-changing circumstances what is necessary, what is salient, what is going to guide his choice. He also says that the prudent man can see what is far away, close up, so he can see how the particular situation relates to some general vision that he has of how to live well. And this is necessary for his happiness. It's also a claim that Aquinas has that you cannot have this kind of vision without perfected appetites, because fear and anger and other disordered passions blind you. They literally prevent you from seeing what's right in front of your face. Um, a great example that Aquinas often gives is St. Peter when he denies Christ, right? St. Peter is blinded by his fear and cannot see Christ as his best friend in the moment that he denies him. So without virtue, without properly regulated passions, um, we don't know where to look. We don't know where to direct our attention. And so we cannot see the appropriate features of the circumstances to guide our choices. 
And I think what's interesting about her stories is that they're full of characters whose vision is narrowed by their sin and by the effects of sin on their soul and characters who need to rely on God's grace in order to broaden their vision so that they can see the fullness of reality again. It's also important to O'Connor that an artist's vision is inseparable from her moral vision. I think when we look back on her life, we can see her time in Iowa as really perfecting the kind of formal elements of her art. Her stories are masterfully crafted, um, and this is, this, is, this is a part of her art. Um, but this isn't what is so powerful about her stories. They are masterfully crafted, but what's powerful about her stories is their moral vision. And that vision is aimed at communicating the truth through her art. And that moral vision is the vision of the church, and in particular, the vision of the theology of Thomas Aquinas. And so she thinks that her moral judgment can't be separated from her artistic vision any more than nature can be separated from grace. They're one and the same. Um, I also think it's interesting that um, she's obviously very well aware of her southernness, especially during her time in Iowa and in New York City. Um, but she's very aware of her southernness as a writer, as an artist. And she thinks of it as an aid, not a hindrance. Um, why was it an aid? She says, the South is struggling mightily to retain her identity against great odds and without knowing always quite in what her identity lies. An identity is not made from what passes. It's not from slavery or from segregation, but from those qualities that endure because they are related to the truth. What are these qualities that the South possesses? Those beliefs and qualities which she has absorbed from the scriptures and from her own history of defeat and violation, a distrust of the abstract, a sense of human dependence on the grace of God, and the knowledge that evil is not simply a problem to be solved, but a mystery that must be endured. I think that the southern sense of defeat, I mean, this is very close, actually, to some things that Walker Percy says about being a southern Catholic writer, um, that it was sort of like a benefit um, that they had lost the war, um, because the southerner has a sense of the tragic and a sense of his own fallenness. Um, but another thing that I want to say about O'Connor as a southern Catholic writer is that her vision isn't simply moral, but it's also prophetic. Um, what does that mean? Well, if you look at what Aquinas says about prophecy, um, the prophet has a peculiar insight into the enduring mysteries of human existence. He has a kind of knowledge that comes from God, through God's grace acting in us, but also a kind of participation, a broader participation in the complete truth that is God. So prophetic knowing or revelation is a matter of seeing how ordinary things relate to God, how the visible relates to the invisible, how the material relates to the spiritual, how the temporal relates to the eternal, and how the general relates to the particular. And I think all of this for her is very sacramental. So when you also think about her artistic vision, it's incredibly sacramental and it's incarnational. So in her work, if you look at the symbols, 
you see that the spiritual is always materially realized. Um, and this is really important for her because for her, the truth that fiction can uniquely give us, it's not the same as the truth of philosophy or theology. The truth of fiction is not given to us in abstract principles or arguments. It's given in the experiential context of the material of the particular story, right? The way that grace unfolds in a particular person, in a particular unrepeatable situation. And this is incarnational because in the, in the incarnation, divine spirit becomes in-mattered in particular human flesh. And likewise in fiction, divine truths become in matter in the specific circumstances and materials of the story. So if we think that vision is of the perceptual realm, as Aquinas teaches, it always pertains to the particular. Um, and I think that's why for her, um, this guiding metaphor of vision is essential to her conception of herself as, a, as, a, as an artist of fiction in particular, because it's so related to a particular story, the story of a particular soul. Okay, so I wanna take all of this now um, and apply it to a specific story. Uh, and this is a good man is hard to find. It's a good story to pick because it has all the elements um, and it's also short. Uh, <laughs> But this is the story that led her to be compared to Melville and Hemingway. Um, this is a story of God's grace extended to someone outside the sacraments, its usual vehicle, in order to perfect a profound change in a person. It's a comically dark story. It's a story of mishaps and misfits and violence, but also merciful redemption and the triumph of God's grace in a human soul. So what's the story about? Well, we're introduced to a family, a southern family, and they're preparing to go out on a road trip. So you have the central character of the story is this kind of uh, genteel grandmother. She has one son, Bailey, she calls Bailey Boy, and uh, he has a wife and three young children, and they're headed to Florida. The grandmother is really desperate not to go to Florida, um, so she spends uh, a lot of time trying to convince them we should really be going to Tennessee, it's much better. She starts to make her case against going to Florida by pointing out that there's this fella that calls himself the misfit, and he's loose from the federal pen and headed toward Florida, and you can read here what it says he did to people. Just you read it. I wouldn't take my children in any direction with a criminal like that loose in it. I couldn't answer to my conscience if I did. So this sets up the central irony, this conversation right at the beginning of the story. It sets up the central irony of the story because, of course, it will be the grandmother that leads the children straight into the misfit, not her son, Bailey. So the grandmother pretends she wants to stay at home, but everyone knows, especially the children, uh, that of course she's gonna go with them. And sure enough, the next morning, the grandmother is the very first person dressed up and ready to go in the car. She has snuck her cat into her big black suitcase. Um, she has to sneak her cat on as a stowaway because her son forbids her to bring him. Um, she's 
you know, O'Connor spends a lot of time talking about the way the grandmother is dressed. She's wearing her white cotton gloves, a navy blue straw sailor hat with a bunch of violets on the brim, and a navy blue dress that's very neatly pressed and has small polka dots on it. Her collars and cuffs were white organdy trimmed with lace, and at her neckline she pinned a purple spray of cloth violets containing a sachet. What's the point of all this detail? Well, the grandmother is thinking to herself, in case of an accident, anyone seeing her dead on the highway will know at once that she was a true lady. So she, <laughs> this is also ironic because um, things will end up slightly that way. So in the car ride, she's busy being the consummate annoying passenger. She's chastising the children. She's speaking very wistfully of the old South, now gone with the wind. She speaks of neatly groomed plantations, respect for the soil and genteel manners. They stop for barbecue where the grandmother and the owner of the barbecue joint continue to reminisce about the glory days of the old South, a place that they all knew was safe, at least for white people. And the owner of the barbecue says, a good man is hard to find. Everything is getting terrible. I remember the day you could go off and leave your screen door unlatched, not no more. And they discuss the misfit once again. Then they get back on the road and the grandmother gets it into her head that they are close to a plantation that she visited as a child. And the more she reminisces about this plantation, the stronger her desire is to see it again. And she begins to tell the children of a secret panel in the house where the family had hid their silver from Sherman and his troops during the war. A feature that she wished were true, as it clearly excited the children, even though it was not. She convinces Bailey to travel down a dirt road to this plantation, but along the road a horrible thought occurs to her that is so upsetting, she knocks over her suitcase and her cat leaps out and attacks Bailey, who subsequently wrecks the car. The grandmother's horrible thought was that the plantation she so vividly recalled was not in Georgia at all, but in East Tennessee. But the car is now inoperable. You know, her, her daughter-in-law has a broken shoulder and the baby is hurt. Now, in a few minutes, a car comes down the road and the grandmother begins frantically to wave it down. There are three men inside. The driver looks down upon them with a steady, expressionless gaze. He is shirtless, wearing glasses, and also ill-fitting and mismatched clothes. The grandmother immediately identifies him as he approaches. You're the misfit. I recognized you at once. Yes, am the man says, smiling. But it would have been better for all of you, lady, if you hadn't recognized me. So now we know for certain that the grandmother has sealed their doom. But the grandmother doesn't quite get it yet. So she's attempting to appeal to his sense of propriety. You wouldn't shoot a lady, would you? The grandmother asks. I would hate to have to, the misfit replies. The grandmother keeps imploring him. You're a good man. What does this mean? For the grandmother, this means he does not have common blood. She assures him repeatedly that she knows he comes from nice people and asks him comically whether he wouldn't prefer to settle down and live a nice, comfortable life. The entire scene here is very darkly comic. You can't help but be amused by the grandmother's behavior, even as you are utterly horrified by the reality of the situation. And the misfit is well-mannered, 
Even as he is clearly the angel of death come to take them, he is respectful about it. He even chastises Bailey for swearing at his mother, but in a gentle and patient way. Bailey is taken to the woods along with his two sons to be shot by the misfit's men. Upon their disappearance, the grandmother asks the misfit if he ever prays, and she assures him that Jesus would help him if he did. But the misfit replies, I want no help. I'm doing all right by myself. So the misfit's men come out of the woods with Bailey's shirt for the misfit to put on. The grandmother is in such a state of confusion that she can't even remember what that shirt reminds her of. She, like the misfit, confesses she cannot remember what she has done. The misfit politely asks Bailey's wife if she and her daughter would like to join her husband in the woods, leaving the grandmother and the misfit alone together. At this point, the grandmother is no longer able to speak at all, except to say the name of Jesus over and over again. The misfit explains to the grandmother that he calls himself the misfit because I can't make what all I done wrong fit with all I gone through in punishment. And he asks her, does it seem right to you, lady, that one is punished a heap and another ain't punished at all? To this theological query about guilt and retribution, the grandmother continues to insist that he surely wouldn't shoot a lady, that he comes from nice people. And for good measure, she adds that she'll give him all the money she has if he spares her life. And then she hears two more gunshots coming from the woods. And now I'm just going to read you uh, the final bit of the story because I couldn't possibly do it justice on my own. This is what the misfit says to the grandmother. Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, the misfit continued, and he shouldn't have done it. He'd thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw everything away and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness, he said, and his voice had become almost a snarl. Maybe he didn't raise the dead, the old lady mumbled, not knowing what she was saying and feeling so dizzy that she sank down into the ditch with her legs twisted under her. I wasn't there, so I can't say he didn't, the misfit said. I wished I had been there, he said, hitting the ground with his fist. It ain't right I wasn't there, because if I'd have been there, I would have known. Listen, lady, he said in a high voice. If I'd have been there, then I would have known, and I wouldn't be like I am now. His voice seemed about to crack, and the grandmother's head cleared for an instant. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own, as if he were going to cry, and she murmured to him, Why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. She reached out and touched him on the shoulder. The misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. Then he put his gun down on the ground and took off his glasses and began to clean them. Hiram and Bobby Lee returned from the woods and stood over the ditch, looking down at the grandmother who half sat and half lay in a puddle of blood with her legs crossed under her like a child's and her face smiling up at the cloudless sky. Without his glasses, the misfit's eyes were red-rimmed and pale and defenseless looking. Take her off and throw her where you've thrown the others, he said, picking up the cat that was rubbing itself against his leg. She was a talker, weren't she? 
Bobby Lee said, sliding down the ditch with a yodel. She would have been a good woman, the misfit said, if there had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. Some fun, Bobby Lee said. Shut up, Bobby Lee, the misfit said. It's no real pleasure in life. So, there's a sense in which the story ends exactly as we've known all along it would. The grandmother is murdered by the misfit on account of her own lack of good sense. But what we didn't expect, and what the misfit clearly didn't expect, was for the misfit to make himself vulnerable to her, to express his own desire for faith and his despair in the fact of its absence and what the lack of faith has done to him. And in that moment of vulnerability, we didn't expect for the grandmother to see him as one of her own children, to recognize his wounded humanity and to respond with the tenderness of a mother's love. And that revelation, the moment of seeing him in his essence and responding appropriately, makes him lash out in violence. He feels attacked by this expression of love towards him, and he kills her. In this moment, the moment of her death, the grandmother is utterly transformed by God's grace. She has died with a smile on her face in the posture of an innocent child. The misfit has, in this moment, become an unwitting instrument of God's grace, redeeming the grandmother in spite of herself. And just as the grandmother has seen the misfit for the first time for who he really is, likewise, he takes off his glasses and his eyes too have changed. They are no longer steady and expressionless and intent on murder, but red-rimmed and pale and defenseless. He too seemingly has changed. And as he cleanses the grandmother's blood from his glasses, we are meant to wonder the extent to which he too sees things differently now, and perhaps more clearly. We are led to wonder whether her blood is the first step of his own redemption. And so that it is no surprise that he expresses disgust that one of his men would take pleasure in their murderous afternoon. It's no pleasure in life, he chastises them. Here we see a vision of grace that displays the power of God to work changes in us, in spite of our sins and our dispositions to sin, that God's love has the power to break us out of our complacency. In the grandmother's case, her self-image as a Southern lady, which narrows her vision of other people as they fit within a class structure of an old South she longs to bring back. And in the misfit's case, his image of himself as cut off from God's love and providential care, as someone whose main goal is to escape the structure of judgment and punishment in order to live freely to pursue the pleasures of meanness. So in the final moments of the story, the action of grace does give us a sense of the dramatic, the tragic, and the infinite. It does fill us with grief, but above grief wonder at the goodness of God and of his infinite love and mercy for human beings. I think in all of Flannery O'Connor's stories, there are these moments of profound change, moments of grace at work, outside the sacraments usually. And Grace often works in her stories to clarify the vision of her characters. It works to pierce this veil of self-deception. It works on people who are humorously ignorant of their own defects of soul, making those defects manifest to themselves in very extraordinary ways.
Flannery O'Connor once wrote, I am mighty tired of reading reviews that call a good man as hard to find, brutal and sarcastic. These stories are hard, but they are hard because there is nothing harder or less sentimental than Christian realism. The truth is my stories have been watered and fed by dogma. I am a Catholic, and at some point in my life, I realized that not only was I a Catholic, but this was all I was. That I was a Catholic not like somebody else would be a Baptist or a Methodist, but like somebody else would be an atheist. If my stories are complete, it is because I see everything as beginning with original sin, taken in the redemption, and reckoning on a final judgment. Thanks for your attention.